life is too short to be just slaving over the, you know, the nitty gritty to to get to the point of, you know, the next promotion, the next thing, because you think this ladder is exactly what you should be climbing, because our parents did it that way, or that's what we've been told. It's more about if you can figure out a way to do what you love and not just do the work, but love the work, then you will be successful with what you do. Hi everyone, that was a little preview of my conversation with my friend Holly Finnegan. I'll give you guys a little more background. So Holly founded Nantucket Black Book in 2012. It is a modern day guide to Nantucket that is based all around trust and genuine marketing. As always, we get real in our conversation. We talk about Holly's years before Nantucket Black Book, such as when she traveled the world to St. John, Argentina, New Zealand, and Hawaii. We talk about her bartending days where she learned a ton of life lessons, such as the art of hustle, patience, people skills, and mastering difficult situations. Holly then tells us a story when she launched Nantucket Black Book. We talk about how it disrupted the media industry in Nantucket, how she persevered against the naysayers, her aha moments, how she has built genuine trust and friendships with her clients, and so much more. Holly was also kind enough to share personal stories, such as when she lost her mom just around four years ago, and how she recently had open heart surgery just 10 weeks ago. Through these adverse life experiences, she's able to be a true model for listeners that may be going through similar hardships. I hope you guys enjoy Holly's stories as much as I did. Thanks so much. Okay, welcome Holly to High Five Success Stories. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, and I wanted to start out by saying that this week I've had the best time playing on your website, Nantucket Black Book. Um, I love looking at all the beautiful pictures and learning all about the different restaurants, shops, hotels, and rentals. And it's really beautifully put together. So the fact that I literally text all my girlfriends and was like, we need to plan a trip to Nantucket this summer ASAP. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be able to help you, and maybe at the end of the podcast, we can go uh, rapid fire to a couple of my favorites. Yes, and I also, like, I was thinking in my head, like, who of my best friends' bachelorettes are coming up that we can plan? So hopefully we'll get a weekend going. And then also, I know you just had open heart surgery, like, nine to ten weeks ago, so I feel very grateful and honored that you're taking the time to do this. So I really appreciate that as well. Thank you. Well, I've had a lot of time. So this has been a perfect thing. It's nice to have good conversations with people who aren't my doctors or nurses. So. Okay, good. Um, so anyways, I thought we'd dive right into it and have you provide us with a little bit of background on life prior to Nantucket Black Book. Perhaps a little bit of background on where you grew up, went to school, and then how you discovered the wonderful island of Nantucket. Okay, yeah, sure. So, um... Right now, I'm 34, but I grew up in a town called Hanover, New Hampshire, so where Dartmouth College is. Oh, right. So I went to, uh, well, I was born in Concord, Mass. After my parents split up when we were, like, four, mm-hmm. um, we decided, my uh, two sisters, my mom and I, that we would move up to Hanover since my grandfather had gone to Dartmouth and he had retired up there. Okay. Um, so I spent uh, all of, basically all of my elementary, middle school, and high school education up in Hanover, which is a beautiful town to grow up in, uh, and a really awesome place to raise kids since it's right next to the college, which Mm -hmm. gives a lot of opportunity and whatnot. So I spent, till I was 18 in Hanover, and then I ended up going to the University of New Hampshire uh, for college, and that wasn't uh, really where I wanted to go. I kind of had a little bit of the Ivy League-itis, as we called it, in Hanover, where when you go to a school like Hanover High School that is surrounded by Dartmouth, you know, my best friends went to Harvard and Cornell and Yale. Oh, wow. Okay. It was uh, like going to your own state school wasn't really um, 
wasn't really in the cards, I didn't think, for me. But I, it was actually the only school that I ended up getting into. Okay. I had, I had gotten waitlisted at four of the six schools that I applied to, and I didn't get into my top choice of UVA. And so I ended up um, only having the University of New Hampshire as my choice. Okay. So, um, so that was a little difficult for me because I just thought, gosh, you know, I worked so hard, like, to go to my own state school. I was mm. just, you know, I, I unfortunately, like I said, that uh, I kind of fed into that if you weren't going to, you know, a top 20 school, that it wasn't worth going to. But right. to me, going to UNH ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. So, um, so shout out to all those college you know, applications right now, as everyone's finding those things out, sometimes what seemingly is the worst thing to happen to you can turn out to be the best thing to happen to you. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're saying that, Holly, because I have a couple nieces and nephews that are in that stage right now that they're going to start applying to schools, and um, I hope they realize that you know it all works out in the end, no matter where you go to school. So, totally. Yeah. Totally. And they and you know putting so much pressure on a school to make it be. Um, you know, what makes you happy is mm-hmm. getting into this thing, getting accepted. It's like, you know, the idea of getting accepted into anything um, is should be a joy in itself, not mm-hmm. just if you get into all 20 places that you applied or, you know, into your top school. Sometimes, you know, even just getting into one is all you need. So, right. um, so yeah, so I ended up going to the University of New Hampshire. I had to, like, you know, I had transfer papers in my bag when I, like, got there. And, uh, of course, then the eating all my words. I had to call my mom in a week and be like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. I love this school. Okay. Don't, ever, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. So, yeah. so that was great. I, uh, I rushed a sorority my freshman year, um, uh, an Alpha Phi sister, and that created a really beautiful community for me. And uh, I also also a journalism major uh, at UNH, so did a lot of writing for the paper. Um, and so when I was a senior, Steph, uh, mm-hmm. Facebook launched. So okay. we were one of the first 300 schools to uh, become part of the Facebook network. Okay. Uh, it was actually thefacebook.com at that point, and it was only for college kids. So I've really grown up with social media in a professional light more than a personal one. Okay. By the time you're a senior in college, you're right. kind of like, ah, I gotta be a little wary of you know what, what I'm you're doing. Yeah. Because <laughs> like you know they you don't want to totally screw up a job opportunity by posting something that could end up hurting you or you know you kind of learn that the hard way. So uh, social media marketing uh, or at least social media in general has always been kind of a part of my post grad life. Yeah. So you just uh, you just missed then because I'm so I'm 30 so I guess I'm four years younger than you four or yeah, five yeah. and so I went into it like in the right in freshman year of college where it was like everyone was posting. So you're sort of lucky that you kind of missed that stage a little bit. Yeah, so. my, my sister is uh, 36 right now. Okay? Okay. So we graduated from high school in 99 and 01, and we graduated from college in 03 and 05. Okay. So she and I, she's actually here on Nantucket right now, but oh, she nice. and I were chatting about how we're part of this senior generation. So that's um, Gen X and millennials together. So it's basically like 1976 to 1983, kids born between those years are okay. kind of like they got to see both sides. So okay. we grew up with like very little technology or just maybe intro to uh, computer classes, dial up modems, uh, you know, AOL messenger, but we didn't, uh, we didn't have social media uh, and we didn't have the access to internet as being kind of, uh, it was more of a luxury. So, so I think that what I can say for how I've 
run my life and how I look at social media now, I feel very grateful because I got to see both sides. Mm-hmm. So I feel like because of that, I need to show both sides to okay. both the, the, our, our parents' generation and the generation below. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about that way. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you think about it's not that long that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, all these things have been around, you know, right. LinkedIn is really like the grandfather of it all. Exactly. And that yeah. was like 2001. Okay. Um, but, you know, Facebook was 2004. Okay. Um, Instagram wasn't until like 2010. Um, um, yeah. Pinterest didn't take off, even though it launched in December of 2010, it didn't really take off until 2011. Um, All these things, uh, you know, are still really, really new, and there's Mm. not that much information or uh, there's not a ton of research into what all this stuff does to you. So I find it really fascinating not to just look at it as a social media, but as more of like a, a kind of just media in general that is so young. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so then, anyway, so, so getting back, sorry for the digression into that. I'm sure we'll touch on those points later. But no, I like that. I, I studied history, so I'm always like intrigued by like how things evolve. So I love yes, that little. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So when I graduated from the University of New Hampshire in 2005, my big sister and my sorority at Alpha Phi is a Nantucket native. So okay. when we graduated, she had realized that, because um, I also worked at a bar, I bartended throughout college for, um, for money and then uh-huh. also would spend the summers working in Weak Pog, Rhode Island, um, at a, like down in Watch Hill in that mm-hmm. area of the coast. And I would uh, work in the restaurant industry there. And she was like, you know, you should come work on the restaurant industry on Nantucket. You'll kill it. Like, make so much money. You can live with my family for the summer. And, you know, we could have one more endless summer before we got to, you know, quote, start the real world Mm -hmm. kind of thing. (laughs) And that was 14 years ago. So And the rest uh, is history. (laughs) So, so you know, I lived on Nantucket for um, that first summer, 2005. I was here for, like, kind of Memorial Day to Labor Day. But the island didn't really seep into my blood uh, until the following winter when I was away. Okay. I moved to Boston after that first winter, uh, or summer, excuse me. Okay. And I just, like, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about the island. And I really, uh, I wasn't really interested. It was really hard to find journalism-based jobs out mm-hmm. of college. Okay. Um, so I was just like, you know what, I might as well just become a career bartender at this point, much to my father's dismay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I ended up coming back to Nantucket in 2006. And that was the year that really changed my life because I worked out here from April through December, wow, which was okay. kind of the Nantucket season. Mm-hmm. And then I started taking my winners uh, off for four months to travel. Um, so in 2007, I lived in St. John in the Caribbean. In 2008, I was backpacking around New Zealand for four months. In 2009, I was in Maui, Hawaii. And then in 2010, I was in Argentina for two months in Uruguay for a month. Wow, so cool. So I got to do a lot of really cool exploration. And I was always, I started a blog on Nantucket in 2008, um, all about what it was like to be single on Nantucket. um, When you're single on Nantucket and you're a female, someone once told me that they say that the odds are good, but the goods are odd. So so I I started this blog back in 2008 on Blogspot. um, And it was just kind of like my, my musings, my thoughts, and they all started from being a bartender. It was kind of like you're always eavesdropping on people's conversations. Right, so okay. It all started 
some quotes that I would hear from people like, um, why are you still single? You're such a good catch. The girl said to the guy and he says, I don't know. I just get keep, I just keep getting tossed back in. Interesting. Like single men on Nantucket about this national phenomenon. And I was like very interested in having my own sex in the city style blog. Right. That. That's hilarious. Um, I love that. <laughs> so that that took over and then when I was in New Zealand I had a blog called the Kiwi Chronicles when okay. I was in Argentina I had the Ovita Diaries and then um, in 2010 while I was down in Uruguay um, my mom got sick my mom has something called lyomyosarcoma it's like okay. a smooth muscle um, cancer and it started in her uterus area in 2002 and then she was cancer free per se for eight years and then in 2010 while I was living in Uruguay we got the I got an email from my sister saying you know mom's they think that it's mom's cancer let's come back you should probably come home okay so uh, so that kind of just changed and shifted my perspective on everything I didn't really want to be so far away my mom lived in Vermont and I was living on Nantucket so okay. I decided to make Nantucket by year round home okay. in 2010, and I've lived on Nantucket year round since then. Okay, amazing. So, backing up, I want to touch on a few points what you just said because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, uh, first off, uh, St. John, I just got back from there about a month ago. My girlfriends and I did a big, big trip down there, and it was so awesome. amazing. Yeah. Where did you stay? We so her parents have a place. Um, I think it's right near Cinnamon Bay, I want to say. Yeah, awesome. I hope that's right. She's, <laughs> I'm going to have to text her after this. Um, Cinnamon Beach is one of the best ones. Okay. And yeah, and so we there's like 10 of us, so we had the best. It's really such a, like a beautiful island, and everyone was so nice, too. Totally, totally. I felt like St. John was like a hilly Nantucket. There was actually a lot of okay. uh, contingency of people who would spend the summers in Nantucket and the winters in St. John. Okay. So, That's so funny, yeah. So um, it's definitely... The island, by the way, because of uh, obviously what had happened. Um, in 2017 with the hurricanes and it, it got hit pretty hard. How was the, uh, the, island, how yeah. was the island recovering? Yeah. So, um, St. John was actually in pretty good shape. A couple of the restaurants were completely shut down, but for the most part, um, you know, it, it still looked really pretty and everything, but we did do a boat trip in the BBIs and that's where I think a lot of the damage happened, which is sort of sad to see. Yeah. yeah. yeah totally. Did you so, go to Van Dyke? We did, yes. We took a boat trip over there. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it was fun. Yeah. So, um, but, um, but yeah, so we did a big trip down there. So that was super fun. Um, but then I also wanted to ask you about your bartending days because, um, a couple of people in my family have been bartenders and they always say you learn a lot of life lessons. So, um, I know that you thought of like the different blogs to do and I loved hearing those stories, but did you, what other, um, life lessons or skills did you learn that maybe help you today with your business? I think that everybody at some point should work in the restaurant industry because it really teaches you the art of hustle, the art of patience, and the uh, the mastering the skill, or at least uh, you know starting to master it of mm-hmm. how to deal with uncomfortable situations. Okay. And so uh, I definitely think as a bartender, my friend Johnny says that bartending is ninety percent relationships and talking, and it's ten percent pouring drinks. Okay. So. So the mostly, if you're kind of, some guy once told me that if you were a good bartender, you could do anything you wanted in life because it's really about relationships, people skills, and um, being able to make a conversation with anybody. 
Okay. Uh, so it was uh, it was an incredible opportunity to bartend on Nantucket and around the world. Every time I was uh, traveling, I would work in a restaurant as well. So oh, wow. uh, down in down in St. John, I was working at a place called uh, High Tide, which was like the first bar that you see when you get off the ferry. Yes, and okay. Then I, and then I worked at, as like a water girl at this place called Zozo's, which is a, was at Gallows Point at this point, which was, uh, I think they have shifted since 2007, but okay. a real awesome Italian spot to watch the sun. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, yeah. So bartending, you know, I'd say it's it's not for everybody. It's Mm -hmm. a really hard lifestyle, to be honest. Uh, Even though I loved doing it for as long as I did, it's kind of strange when you're going into work at four o'clock and everybody else is getting out. Right. Uh, And you know, it's also it's all cash. So uh, sometimes you kind of feel a little fake rich from it all. Okay. uh, but but I also think, you know, a lot of how I became who I am here on Nantucket is because of the nine years that I spent behind the bars at yeah, bar. different, yeah. different spots. Okay. Um, yeah, I love that. And then we'll talk about some more offline, but my sister Patrice, the one that's friends with um, Brad and Amy, um, our mutual friends, um, she spent a summer bartending in Nantucket or in the restaurant industry up there. And she always says she learned so much. I have to go back to her and see where she worked. But um, yeah, so she's a couple years older than you though. Um, but anyhow, I also wanted to touch too, because you talked about when, um, your mom got sick and, um, I talk about this a lot on my different podcasts when people go through different, you know, types of adversity. So would love if you could offer any advice to listeners that may have recently lost a loved one, or perhaps is dealing with a loved one that is struggling with a life threatening disease. So sort of how you handle the whole situation. Totally. You know, but, like I said about UNH being the best and worst thing ever happened to me, mm-hmm. um, the, losing my mom in 2014 very much feels that same way. Okay. Um, you know, my mom was sick with cancer for about 12 years before, uh, even though there was eight years of remission. Uh, so they, it was a really difficult time in our lives to live doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment. And mm-hmm. it was almost like they were able to define what our happiness level was by what they were telling us. Okay. And my mom always used to say things like doctors are not gods. Right. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, we ended up having to be our own doctors by the end of it when she had decided to go into hospice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I would say, uh, and I'm, I'm writing a book actually uh, about, you know, life and love and loss, but like ultimately that sometimes the worst things that can happen to you can be the best things that can happen to you as well. Uh, and a big focus of it is on my mother and, um, you know, like you only lose a, a mom once, thank God, it's pretty pretty damn difficult yeah. but uh but also what that does for you death opens up this it's a it's a gift because it opens up your eyes in a completely different way i know we had chatted a little bit about you had um, read option b yeah with um cheryl sandberg and adam grant and i have that started okay. and it's it's great it's like you know i mean hers was with her husband yeah um, cheryl's husband uh, kind of tragically all of a sudden just being in her life and then out of her life so quickly what the gift was that I had with my mother is that I had 12 years of knowing that we were going through this like death decrescendo okay. so so I had a long time to say goodbye to her and okay. it doesn't make it any less difficult but I also really understand like let's say if your parent is sick right now or your loved one is ill and you know that maybe palliative care is in the future or potentially hospice or you have you know years months weeks days left with somebody it's like the fact that you have that time is 
incredible. And the fact that you're able to say a goodbye is such a gift. Right. So. No, thank so you for sharing so, that. Um, no, no, thank you. And, like a, it's really, I've talked to a lot of people. I'm, my mom will have been gone for four years on April 8th. Okay. Um, and I make a big point every year to launch a big piece of my writing on April 8th and also talk about, you know, in 2015, it was the year of firsts and okay. how, you know, you go through this first birthday without her, first right. Christmas without her, first, you know, grandbaby born that she won't get to meet kind of thing and what that feels like. And yeah. Then, um, Two years later, I did like two years forward, one looks back, and it was all about six ways in which I've been coping with different mechanisms that, you know, what were some of the ones that were vices and what were the ones that actually added a lot of value to my life. And yeah. then finally, last year, I launched a piece, which I'll send to you, you and share with your readers and okay. listeners, excuse me, uh, that's called The Mother of All Truth. And okay. it's basically like three years later, I've really come to terms with the evolution that was my mom's death. Right. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And so you were 30 years old when that happened? Yes, I okay. your age. My yeah, age, I know. I turned 30 uh, June 24th, uh, 2013, and so my mom was out. That was the last time she got to come out to Nantucket was that August, and then she passed away the following April, so I was 30 at the time. Oh, wow. I know. Now that I'm 30, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it must have been so hard. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think there's like, you know, there's never a right time, there's right. never enough time for any of these kind of things, but yeah. at the same time, you know, I think, like, God, I got 30 years to my mom, that's a long time right. for, for anything. Definitely. Some people, you know, either they don't get to even know one of their parents or that they, it happens so young that they're so unaware of what's going on. Right. Um, I was very much, even though I was... Uh, even though I wasn't fully uh, present for everything that happened from her, I wrote it all down in okay. a journal. And that's why I have this opportunity to write this book, really, that had all of my true feelings. True feelings, yeah. I love that. And um, one thing that um, Cheryl talks about a lot um, in her book, which you probably came across, is gratitude. So she said that helped her a lot when she lost her husband suddenly. So she, um, like, our, our brains actually have a way of, like, looking at the negative so she kind of used that as a trick to say things could be worse. So she always thought about what could be worse. Like she could, she could have lost both her, her kids. And yeah. so that really helped her. And then she said that um, every night she would write down three things she was grateful for, which really, um, you know, helped her as well. So I wanted to see your thoughts on gratitude and if that sort of helped uh, yeah. you do that. I think yeah. any very balanced person has a fair amount of gratitude mm. in a practice. So I consider myself pretty whole right now. Um, and so I got started doing a gratitude journal back in 2016. Okay. Um, I went to Kripalu. Uh, in uh, Western Mass, and okay. I had this really, I actually in 2007, I was introduced to The Secret, The Law of Attraction uh, from a friend. I don't know how familiar you are with that, um, but you know, like kind of like everything that you can imagine is real, the art of putting it into motion, like things have already happened to you, um, to make sure that like, you know, with what you want, you've already envisioned that it's happened and manifested as opposed to just constantly be, um, thinking you want these things, think that they've already happened to you. Wait, that's so, so funny that you mentioned that because that is what kickstarted my, that book changed my life. I love that. Literally, love that. It, back in fall of 2000, like, right around Thanksgiving in 2017, no, 2016, so it'll, it's like a year and a half now. Um, my friend gave it to me. She, she kept saying, you have to read this, you have to read this. And I'm the kind of person that like, 
I'm so set in my ways that like that it just doesn't happen. So she finally bought the book for me and brought it over and it kickstarted like everything for me. And that's why I started the podcast and got into gratitude. Um, so totally on the same page about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, but the idea that also when you have negative thoughts about someone or something, the only person that that harms is you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like constantly to be angry about something or to constantly hold grudges against people, the only person that ultimately has the, um, the repercussions of that, you okay. know, inner turmoil is yourself. So, right. um, so I, I found that the secret was amazing. And then they had another book called the magic. And yes. I um, had that too. <laughs> yeah, the art of gratitude. And, yeah. You know, starting, I, I also don't know if you've read Julia Cameron's the artist way, but that book um, is all about morning pages in the beginning about okay. just waking up and writing three pages, never reading them, not doing anything with them, but just kind of getting your mind in motion. So I always start, you know, my days start with uh, like a slow morning. I write my, uh, morning pages mm-hmm. I end it with like my grateful eight which is like you know eight things in my life that are going well because I still I like three is good but I just have so many more so things many. that I'm thinking about that yeah you can once you kind of get on that train you can go forever right and then um and then I do a meditation and then I get up but I don't look at my phone until all those things are done okay because I um uh, I find that because I live on my phone and my, mm-hmm. you know, my business is all based around my phone, that the boundary that I have with my phone is one of my most important relationships. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. And I, um, cause someone said it makes you too reactive in the morning. If you look at your phone right away, like yeah, if you open yeah. your email or if you open the Instagram, like you'll see something that might like just, you know, set you off and it's just not yeah. the right way to start the day. Um, but no, I'm so, yeah, I have that book, the magic. I did that whole practice, the 28 days of gratitude. So I'll include that in the show notes. Um, but I'm the same way. Every night I write down 10 things um, I'm grateful for, and it changed my life. It really puts yeah, things in perspective. Yeah. yeah. It does. It's so easy once you once you make it a practice. You exactly. Know, they say it's 21 days to rewire your brain. Yes. Basically. So if you can do anything for three weeks consistently, you can really change your life, whether it be quitting smoking, okay. uh, waking up at 5.30 in the morning every day, writing your gratitude list, exercising, okay. whatever you do. You can figure out a way to incorporate into your life for three weeks. Okay. And really make a major shift in your life. 21 days. Got it. Okay. Um, and so rewinding a little bit, cause I want to talk about Nantucket black book. So, um, when did you launch that and was that like a lightning bolt moment or did that sort of evolve over, over time? So I had had the blog. So black book is spelled B L capital A C K. Okay. So it's all one word. And as my dear friend Greer always loves to, uh, joke with me when she would be home in Indiana, somebody would say, oh, what's that Nantucket Black of books that you're part of? <laughs> but ACK is the airport code on Nantucket. So okay. it's kind of like, basically, like, my black book is like being a little more in the know of everything. Mm-hmm. And if you know Nantucket, you know the ACK is the airport code. Then that kind of gives you like this, you know, kind of a little trust into this thing that not everybody would understand. Okay. Nantucket's a really special place. Um, and the only thing that makes you out here is time. So if you, no one can buy that. Even mm-hmm. though it's a very wealthy island, you really have to pay your dues out here and you have to, um, you know, things don't catch on super quick. You know, I live on an island that has no Walmart, no Wendy's, no way off after 10. Right. So you're, you're living in a totally different um, 
piece of life. Okay. And as my friend just says, she calls it like, you know, the art of slow living. That is kind of Nantucket. The pace is different. Okay. So, um, so basically I had this blog, people liked it. It did, you know, it was cheeky and fun. And then in 2011, I wasn't single anymore. My boyfriend okay. at the time was like, Hey, you know, if you not want to write that blog about being single kind of thing, right. what, if you, what if you turned your, blog into an online magazine so that when people who weren't on Nantucket could still keep in touch with the island when they weren't here, if they could pick up a newspaper or a newsletter or um, a magazine or something. So uh, that's where it started. And his name is Joe, and he's an incredible man, and he was, you know, really the catalyst behind switching it. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is that in um, through from December 2011 until May of 2012, uh, he was like, Holly, you cannot tell anyone about what you're doing. Like, you have to keep this to yourself because, you know, what you're going to do might be really big, but as soon as you say that you're going to do it, maybe some other people out here want to jump on that bandwagon. Right, okay. So that was very difficult for me because I was a bartender still at the time, and I was uh, very social, and I loved sharing my joys with other people. But, right. oh, well, so yeah. didn't tell anybody about it. My cousin, uh, one of my best friends as well, he's a web developer and programmer, and so he designed the site. Um, my boyfriend at the time, he was really good with understanding the accounting side of how I was going to charge people and then for myself I was the writer okay. the talent kind of thing so I put the whole thing together so we launched it in May of 2012 as the you know life uh, lifestyle guide of all things hip and fresh and it was kind of like this is what's going on on Nantucket and it's um, a lot about the new stuff and less about like you know the older things okay. because the newer places were a little bit more digital savvy right okay um, and I was also, the way that I run Black Book is completely on advocacy and not advertising. So okay. basically what was happening was I was starting this media group that I didn't really even realize I was starting, but that was based all around trust. Okay. And now we live in this trust economy, okay, Steph? So like if you think of uh, all the social media networks and all the platforms out there, it's I trust you, I like you, I friend you, I follow you, or right. I don't like you, I don't trust you, I unfriend you, I unfollow you. Okay. How quickly those shifts happen was something that I wasn't completely aware of until my friend Jasmine Tocchini goes of brand human, um, a methodology all about the curation of self online and offline kind of opened me up to. Okay. So, so basically, in 2012, I launched this. Um, I didn't realize that I was becoming a major disruptor to the media system out here. Um, it was like kind of hard to have people understand what social media marketing meant. Right. Um, I was met with like a ton of resistance. Um, I had to grow a really thick skin over the next, well, you know, even to where I am now, six right. years, uh, because there was a lot of fear in what I was doing because it wasn't understood. So, you know, you look at it and, and on Nantucket, there's a fair amount of marketing dollars that are going around, whether right. it's for restaurants, retail, or real estate. And when you unknowingly start a new company that's going to take away from some of the advertising on some of the other platforms, right. you're going to be met with some major resistance. Okay. So, um, so it wasn't easy. It was actually yeah. really difficult. I spent, there's a lot of tears. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but one thing that I will tell you and your guests to do uh, as they're, if you're ever starting a business or yeah. understanding that you are a disruptor in some sort of system is that I have this miscellaneous folder, um, in my, uh, Gmail account and I've had it since 2012. And anytime someone would send me an email that would be, 
really off-putting or that was kind of offensive or that was seemingly uh, sent with a fair amount of hate disguised as fear uh, or fear disguised as hate, Uh, uh, I would just put all those emails in a miscellaneous folder. So I would have them if I ever needed them, but I wouldn't put them in my my, my folders so that like you know just so I wouldn't see them continually right exactly so I kind of got out of sight out of mind or at least out of mind until I may need it at some point yeah no I like that and then um speaking of naysayers um how did you not really fall victim to them and and also did you have any self-doubt yourself that you ever ran into yeah definitely I was you know see uh, when you start something like black book I, I wasn't making enough money to leave the restaurant industry. So okay. I was still bartending um, at this wonderful place called Bentuno for the first two solid years, 2012 and 2013. So I basically would go into work at four o'clock. Uh, I would bartend at like my little bar. It was called Holly's House. It was okay. very fun. Uh, and then I would get out of work at one with a fat buzz. And then I would go home and I would blog until three o'clock in the morning. And then yeah. I would set my alarm to wake up at seven because uh, this was pre-algorithms on Facebook. And that right. was the most effective tool of social media that I had. Okay. So, um, so I would have to wake up to watch things right at 7 a.m. while people were looking at their phones between 7 and 9. Wow. And then I would, like, try to go back to bed, but I had, you know, whacked out all my sleep patterns. So, yeah. Um, so it was really difficult. And what would happen is that uh, it wasn't so much naysayers. It's that, so I was constantly telling people that there was uh, – value in social media marketing Mm -hmm. and back in 2012 and 13 there was very little understanding on what that was okay so um so it was difficult because even I didn't know what it was I just knew that I believed that I thought it worked you know and then I had to believe hard enough and tell people enough times that it was working to the point that it did work okay um so now that I'm in year seven, it's really easy for me to quantify all my uh, numbers and who my demographic is and, you know, what locations I'm hitting because I have such better information through these statistics on Instagram, okay. uh, Google Analytics and Facebook. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know. And so I had a lot of people, um, you know, just not uh, not seeing what right. I was saying and not understanding the value in it. So right. it was, it was hard, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, if you're consistent, you know, if you're persistent, you'll mm-hmm. get it. But if you're consistent, you're, you'll keep it. And you'll I've it, yeah. been very consistent since I started. So. Yeah. Um, the secret technique, I feel like just, you were just talking about too, and you had to keep believing in yourself and keep telling yourself and then it will happen. Um, yeah, there's that, that secret. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep, keep it going. It's difficult, yeah. you know? It's, yeah. not, um, it's not for everybody. If it was easy, everybody would do it. You know, right. I say that all the time, but that's so true. So true, yeah. And especially when it comes to modern-day blogging. Like, blogging has a little bit of a uh, – when people call me a blogger, it kind of, like, gives me the chills. It's not really, like – really, I don't like that right. terminology with what I do. And I uh, 100% don't like when people call me an influencer. It's, like, my ultimate pet peeve. Right, okay. I'm like the influencer marketing to me is really cheesy. It's not who I am. You don't have to pay me to say something. I, right. If you want to pay me to create some content to say something that I already believe in, then yeah, we can talk about that. But there, if I don't believe in your brand, there's not enough money that you can pay me to say something. Yeah. So 
I love that you say, I love that you say authentic. Um, I think, cause I think it's hard to say authentic in our culture today. So I really respect that a lot. For sure. My other word that just like makes me have like a terrible topic is authentic. You know, it's not that word. Like I was saying to my friend Steve on his podcast, it's mm-hmm. been beaten to death like a piñata. It's like, uh, you know, like it's more genuine. Like genuine. Okay. Genuine. You know, like I look like I have like a whole uh, methodology myself on how okay. I look at social media, marketing and branding. And like for me, it's not about being authentic it's about being genuine 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 has a you know sense of um it could be a person it could be a place it could be a thing you know you think about like you know a genuine levi's brand you know like something that's been around for a long time it's like it's got that trust in it and i would rather be a genuine person um, than anything else but you know then you look at things like you know the word collaboration like that word has been also just so overused Overused, yeah it's not about collaboration it's about community and if you have community you don't need to collaborate because um you know like if you already have all your people around you that support you in community with things is a lot more um influential than in collaboration with things because collaboration sounds like it didn't exist before you started talking but community you know it did you know it did yeah I like that genuine I like that word a lot um the the last one I'll tell you that's where the I'm not an influencer I'm an advocate okay anything that I tell people to do is because I'm advocating for the brand or the business or the person behind something it's because I 100% believe in it believe in it yeah so if I so we want to create a word, a world of advocates and less of a world of influencers. Okay. I love that. Um, and then switching gears a little bit, did you have any aha moments when you knew you were onto something great with Nantucket Black Club? I mean, there was one moment that I tell about being on Twitter that, okay. uh, back when Twitter had such incredible uh, powers of the social media world. Unfortunately, I'm not saying that it's dead. It's mm-hmm. not. It still very much has a interest level for uh, connecting. But uh, unfortunately, I just don't think that people spend as much time on it as they right. used to. But uh, I was on Twitter in 2012. And when that was big then, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Okay. And, and I was always telling people about what to do and where to shop and where to stay and blah, blah. And I got a direct message on Twitter from this guy. It took a guy named Kirk and he was like, hey, you know, um, I really like what you do and I really love what you tell, um, you know, people to buy. And because of that, I'm looking for some gifts for my wife. So if I gave you like a $10,000 budget of my Amex, would you go buy her some things? And I was like, what? You're going to give me your, like, Amex? Yeah. You don't even know who I am? Like, right. That was the thing. It's like, he did know who I was. Right. Because he trusted me. He trusted me. So as soon you. as you gain somebody's trust, like, that's everything. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, he knows I'm not going to be the type of person, at least he, you know, 99% thinks that I'm not going to be the type of person to go and grab his Amex and just book a Costa Rican vacation. Like, you know, I was like, yeah, so I sent him up with a bunch of people that I knew had supported Black Book and that I knew would reap the benefits of his generosity of trying to get some beautiful presents for his wife. And so it ended up just showcasing the synergy of it all that like, you know, like people invest in me and then I invest back in them when I have the opportunity. Yeah. That actually answered my next question a little bit because I was going to ask you how you sort of maintain relationships. And I think it's what you're saying. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all through trust. Yeah. Yeah. It's all through 
it's all through the idea, like a lot of these people have um, built their brands alongside my brand. So I've become now less of just their marketing tool, but more of their friend and their ally because I'm not just telling them, you know, I'm not just saying, hey, buy this dress from Millie and Grace, uh, you know, awesome mm. boutique here on Nantucket. I'm like, mm. you know, my friend Emily curates some of the best stuff on the island and, you know, supporting her is supporting small business and by supporting small business, we're supporting the idea that Nantucket can remain a mom and pop style of the resale community and so you know you've got the opportunity to buy a lot of these things online now but I'm giving you the opportunity to go and support local people so that they can continue to have a commerce section of a beautiful resort island right um and then another question is sort of leading into it too I have is um obviously you deal with people a lot on a daily basis with different companies um and I'm always interested in in people's tactics on managing and dealing with different types of people because in my industry I'm in commercial real estate and I have to deal with a lot of different brokers and a lot of different companies and um you know it can get frustrating at times so I'm always interested to see how people you know go about dealing with um different types of people when it might be like a difficult situation yeah you know I mean what I've recognized now that I'm seven years into this business is that okay. it's about creating really good boundaries around okay. myself and how I talk to my clients and how I, you know, deal with my black book members in a way that feels that I'm there for them, but I'm also not a slave to my job. Right. Um, because that's a, uh, you know, I didn't have those boundaries for a really long time, which was why in 2015, when I went to my first brand human methodology uh, workshop in Brooklyn, New York, okay. it totally opened up my eyes that I had really bad boundaries with all of my clients and okay. it was because I was setting them. It wasn't right. their fault. I was just making myself accessible 24 hours a day. Okay. And I was becoming un- not unknowingly, I was becoming a really uh, frail person because okay. of it, both because I wasn't taking care of myself properly right. and also because I was allowing everybody to pull in a different piece of my limbs. So okay. by the end of it, you know, I was kind of spread so thin right. that I didn't even recognize that. So now, you know, it, it's about creating clear boundaries between myself and then I'm not like, what does it say about you if you send an email out at 10 o'clock at night? You know, right. what does it say about you if you're emailing clients at two o'clock in the morning? Like, right. what does it say if you, you know, show up to a meeting unprepared to just like shoot the shit? You know, okay. it's like you have to, you have to start really valuing your own time. Exactly. To be able to be successful with working with a lot of different people. Um, no, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm, I'm dealing with sim- a, a situation right now where I sort of had to set boundaries with um, someone I'm working with. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And it's, a, it's an incredible eye-opening experience when you're able to do it or to realize that you don't have them because mm-hmm. that's, the, that's like actually the best time is because when you need to realize that you do need to set them up and you have to kind of look at it like, how is this going to make my life more mine and less about like you know being able to give up myself all the time like I've got to like you know what they say like you know fuel your own tank before you fuel everybody else's exactly yeah um and but also I want to say too is that you you must have a lot of fun working with all the different types of people I would assume oh yeah yeah it keeps me I've 
a very high energy person anyways, but uh, adding more, uh, adding more elements of my extroverted self around all these wonderful retailers and restaurateurs and real estate agents and whatnot, it really fuels me to not only be helping them, but also be in community with so many incredible entrepreneurs out there. So I love that. Um, so switching gears a little bit, like I said before earlier, I talk a lot about overcoming adversity in my different podcast. Um, and I talk about the meaning of resilience and I like to talk on about these topics because I feel as though there are a lot of listeners out there, um, that might be going through difficult times. Um, and you can be, you know, a real role model for those listeners. Um, so when we spoke earlier this week, we talked about how you have Marfan syndrome. Is that my yep. pronounce yep. that right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, and as a result, you had to have open heart surgery. Was it 10 weeks ago? Yeah. Just about? Yeah. yeah. Insane. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what Marfan syndrome is and then maybe sort of go into your journey of heart surgery too? So Marfan syndrome is a connective tissue disorder, um, and it can affect the gamut of people in a variety of ways. For my sister and myself, it is a heart uh, disease, okay. so it's a chronic illness that we have to deal with that um, made it so that we had a leaky heart valve. Okay. Uh, think of um, you know, the connective tissue in our heart was, uh, was thin, okay. and so that created um, a tear which needed to ultimately be repaired. So uh, what happens is, is that if we wanted to have children, we had to have this valve repaired as we wouldn't be able to go to full term okay. with the way that the heart was functioning. Um, so my older sister, Christina, who's been you know my best friend and my role model as well, she had this done when she was 21. So she was um, very young and she kind of like needed it to be done uh, because it had gotten to a, the point that surgery was not, it was the only option. Okay. And, so fast forward um, about 15, 16 years, they told me at my yearly, uh, my yearly heart doctor appointment at Boston's Children's Hospital um, that I was going to need to get this done. Uh, it wasn't 100% that I needed to do it right then, okay. but I should just look into it, especially since I'm 34 and yeah. uh, while I'm not in a relationship, like if I was in a relationship, you know, and I was thinking about having kids, it'd be nice not to have to think about having to go have heart surgery before that. Right, yeah. So, so it was all timing for me, and you know, I was like, I was, I, I tried not to think about it a lot. It wasn't like my sister Christina was much more active in the Marfan community, um, okay. but I was always kind of using it as something that I wasn't hiding it per se. I just chose not to make it part of my life. So okay. a lot of people didn't even know that I had a heart condition. Right. Um, so this came as like a little bit of a shock to my community that something like this was actually going on because, you know, heart surgery is a really big deal. Yeah. And um, to go through what I went through by being 100% healthy right before in my own mind and then to wake up with a tube out of my neck, you know, two tubes in my chest, yeah. one out of my lungs, like a catheter, and a tube down my throat. Oh. Like when I first woke, it was like a massive shock to the system to say the least yeah. so um, so it was tough for me you know that first I hadn't stopped or slowed down with Black Oak in about five years okay. um, I had lost my mom in uh, April 2014 okay. I had gotten out of my relationship with my boyfriend who I was with for a long time um, in September of 2016 okay. and then I 
then needed this heart surgery in 2018. So it's like every two years I was having this kind of, you know, I started my business in 2012. So if you look at that, it's like five book in 2012, being an entrepreneur, 2014, losing my mom, 2016, getting out of a really long-term relationship, and then 2018, having heart surgery. Um, I had a lot to reflect on. So um, it actually you know, worst thing to happen to me is best thing to happen to me kind of thing. It was right. exactly what I needed stuff to slow down, look at my business, reevaluate my worth, my life, um, how I make money, if this is worth it even, you know, because yeah. like, it's really hard to be your own boss. And also my health being, you know, my number one priority and understanding the value of my time in a totally different light. Um, yeah. Because often it's not until you get into this point that I may not have that much more time that right. you end up thinking, um, you know, I, I need, there's so many things I need to do. Like, I need to make sure that I uh, make myself a priority instead yeah. of making everybody else a priority all the time. Yeah. So how are you feeling right now? Because you're only like 10 weeks out. That's not that long. Yeah. Oh, good. It's crazy. Even though there are certain times, you know, like there, there are certain restrictions I have. Like I can't carry anything more than 10 pounds, which is like, let's say like a gallon of milk. Okay. Um, I haven't been able to do yoga in like 10 weeks, which has been kind of a bummer for me. Right. I like that, like that helps me. But um, other than that, I mean, I've been healing really well. I've been working okay. on this whole concept about healing inspired and really having people understand that it doesn't matter if it's heartache or heartbreak or heart surgery kind of thing. We're all healing from something, something at some point yeah. in our lives. Um, and that like, you know, you've got this incredible opportunity while you're healing to feel through your feelings and transform your healing into something really higher. Uh, and I find that now, like I look at this and it's kind of like why I'm here is to help people understand that sometimes adversity in these really tough moments are these incredible opportunities to open yourself up to the world around you and be the most genuine version of yourself to communities that already love and respect you. So Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Holly. You've shared some really good stories that I think are really oh, gonna help the listeners. And um one question I have is, you know, if a listener has a family um, member or a friend or a loved one that, you know, is going through surgery or just had surgery, in what ways can they help, you know, help them? Like, do you remember any friends or family that sort of stuck out that, you know, really helped a lot? Yeah, I talked to, I talked about this in my, like, Heal Inspired post that I launched eight weeks after surgery. It was about, you know, it's not just a, we're so trained to tell people, get well soon, heal better fast, uh, you know, or that idea of like, excuse me, that feel better fast or that uh, speedy recovery. One of my favorites, you you get that. It's like, how do you expect people to have a speedy recovery from Mm. heart surgery? How do you expect people to have a speedy recovery when they break a leg? How do you expect people to have a speedy recovery after they lose a parent, after they get out of a long-term relationship, after something financially happens that really affects the way that their life quality becomes? And it's like, we need to stop telling people to just get well soon and for speedy recovery because those those type of things to say to people basically is saying, like, you need to get back to normal because, like, if you're not normal, then, like, something's wrong with you. Yeah. And I kind of think that the best way to help people is to, one, it's not just about gifts and your presence. It's, like, your presence, like, your actual being there is the present. 
like so just showing up after you've been invited or actually like taking somebody for a walk or getting them to get outside of themselves and see things differently it's like that's huge um making sure that you don't just um you know just say like the hey get well soon kind of thing it's like okay. you say them like how are you healing how okay. uh, what are things that could make you feel better uh do you want reiki do you want uh, a blowout for your hair do you want a manicure do you want something that's like seems a little self-indulgent but is actually an experience like flowers and those things are beautiful and so kind to send but yeah. they're they're they also die and when you're right. Like, if you're healing and you're sitting in a hospital for 10 days and one of the bouquets that you're looking at is just dying right in front of you, you're basically like, oh, my God, how long have I been here? Yeah. Um, So we always say, you know, like plants instead of flowers or, you know, don't just um, don't just send chocolates and candies, but maybe send uh, mala beads or intention jewelry for people to kind of create their own uh, their own healing powers through other people's uh, arts and whatnot. Okay. So, so just again, it's sometimes you don't know what to do, and that's fine as yeah. well. But that's when you just say, like, instead of "I have no, I've, I have no idea what you're going through. I can't imagine those kind of things." When you're going through some really hard times, actually, really hurt okay. because you're like, "I'm so alone." Wow. Because okay. you keep telling me that because yeah. you keep saying, "I can't imagine what you're going through." Yeah. So just say if you want to talk about it. Like, I'm here for you. Or if you don't want to talk about it, but you really need, like, a big fat ice cream or a white Russian or whatever it is, like, you know, like, I'll be be there to to have that with you or drop it off for you or just, you know, uh, or even just know that when you are ready to go, that there is someone here that will 100% be around for you. Yeah. I like you said that, too. Um, Cheryl Sandburn talks a lot about that in option B and saying, instead of saying like, I have no idea what you're going through, just even if you call them or text them and just say, you know, if you need someone to talk to, I'm here at any time. Just letting them know that. Yeah. Which I think is. Yeah. That like, just give the option that there is the, um, there is the ability to have good conversations with somebody and it doesn't have to be at all about what is actually going on whether it be that heart surgery or that heartbreak yeah you talk about anything sometimes the best thing to do is just get outside of yourself for a little while right um and you're inspiring me because um my dad has you know has had health issues his whole life and um he had kidney failure and then he has diabetes so um he's a fighter though so he's a, you know getting through it all but um he always wants people to go on walks with him and I am always like, no, I'm too busy. And now I'm like, I need to go on more walks with my dad. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, because I remember a lot of his friends came over and like would go, cause he likes to go to the track where it's flat and they would take him on walks to the track. And now I'm like, shoot, I should definitely do more of that. I got to tell my siblings too. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. Good, good, good. Um, but no, thank you for sharing all this advice. I think it's you know really, really helpful um, for people on both ends, people that, you know, have been through surgery or maybe, you know, have a family member that has been through surgery. I think your story will definitely help. And I would encourage everyone to read your blog too, because you touch on a lot of awesome points in there. Um, so I know we're probably running short on time, so I wanted to see if we could fit in rapid fire if you have time. Perfect. Okay. So we'll go through these quickly too. So when you think of the word success, who do you think of? And it can be more than one person. Uh, my sister, Christina. Okay. And she's your, um, the one that's a couple years older than you. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Love that. 
Um, what advice would you give to your 30 year old self? Now that's a selfish question. Cause I just turned 30 uh, last year. Uh, slow down. Be patient. Okay. It's all in due time. Everything's unfolding. Yeah. I like the patience one. Um, I'm always telling myself to be more patient. It's a constant battle. Um, and we talked about your daily routine. So I have that, but then one thing I want to ask you, if you could gift one book to every person you met, what would it be? Four agreements. Four agreements. Okay. It's all about, um, the four agreements are be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Do not make assumptions. Always do your best. Okay. I have to read that. I'll include that in the show notes too. Um, and then any last words of advice for the listeners and sort of maybe where they can find you and anything else you want to say that we maybe didn't touch on? Well, um, I just think, you know, when you find something that you love doing, mm-hmm. um, it won't feel like work. Okay. So whatever you're doing that doesn't feel like work, uh, and that you love, like try to figure out how to make your job and your joy become um, synonymous with each other because okay. it, life is too short to be just slaving over the you know the nitty gritty to to get to the point of you know the next promotion the next thing because you think this ladder is exactly what you should be climbing because our parents did it that way or that's what right. you've been told right. it's more about if you can figure out a way to do what you love and not just do the work but love the work then you will be successful with what you do okay um and if you want to find me, I'm on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Nantucket Black Book. You can go to NantucketBlackBook.com. Or you can go to Holly at NantucketBlackBook.com if you want to send me an email. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks, Holly. This was so much fun. I loved hearing all about your stories. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success or on Facebook. You can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.